Andrew Morton joins us. The name of the new biography is The Queen, Her Life. It's nice to see you, sir. Nice to see you, too. There is an aspect to this book that I can't ignore, which is it's written in the present tense. And I have to wonder what the timeline was for you, because uh, were you surprised by the Queen's passing? Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, part of it is written in the past tense, uh, but that's towards the end. Like everybody else, I, I had in mind that she would go on at, at least until the Queen, mo- the, the age of the Queen Mother, which was 102. You know, she was. She seemed to be enjoying the job. Yes, she was fragile, but she was still seemed sprightly. So yeah, I was, uh, and like everybody else, I kind of thought that she was impregnable. She would go on forever, like these uh, certain certain brand of batteries. There's also an aspect, though, um, almost of brackets, I guess you could say, of the most famous speech that she may have made, where she said she would serve as long as she lived, and she ended up presiding over the transfer of power two days before she died. Absolutely. I mean, duty, that four-letter word, ran through her like a stick of rock. I mean, it was it was quite extraordinary. And that final picture of her looking like, you know, something out of The Hobbit, uh, like a little wizard bent and but with that devilish smile of hers, gave you no sense that it was, you know, her passing was two days hence. And it did take everybody by surprise because all the royal family scrambled to get to Balmoral to be with um, Her Majesty, and only uh, Anne and Charles uh, managed to be with her as she as she passed. There's a, a an interesting corollary, which is the Queen visiting her uncle, the abdicated king, when he was dying, and he insisted on getting up and getting dressed and greeting her. And one wonders if that very same pantomime was executed for the Queen's meeting with the two Prime Ministers. Well, the, the, their testimony is, was very much that she seemed sprightly, she seemed fine. I mean, people talk about the, the, her, one of her hands was very blue, as though she'd had a drip or something put into her. I mean, I'm not a medical person, I don't know. I mean, she, the, the Duke of Windsor was ill for some months and and it was known to be in fact there's a story in the book about the the reason why the queen met him was because she was in uh, in europe for the signing of the um <laughs> ironically uh, 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 the admission of great britain into the european uh, union and the the british ambassador made it clear to the doctor looking after the duke of windsor that he couldn't die whilst the queen was um, visiting various dignitaries in France. So every night, the, the Duke's doctor would call up the, the British ambassador to give a running commentary on his state of health. And the Queen made time in her programme to see him. And it was it was for her quite a, an emotional meeting because his whole behaviour uh, reminded, uh, reminded her uh, of her, her father, George VI. People often talk about Queen Elizabeth as if it was an accident that she uh, became the queen, but she always was going to be the queen. I mean, unless Edward had had children, which was extraordinarily well, unlikely. Well, not really. I mean, you know, when she was born, I mean, nobody thought that she, she that she was going to be the queen. Everybody thought David, the, the family name for later Edward VIII, would marry, settle down, and have children. After all, he was, he, you know, he had various mistresses all married he had various dalliances so um they did anti- the the royal family did anticipate that this hugely charismatic character would would marry and 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 then 
the, the Duke of York and the Duchess of York would, would move into an ancillary position, but that was not to be. And it, it, after the abdication, of course, it was obvious that uh, Elizabeth was going to be queen. And every night she said her prayers and she hoped that her mother would give birth to a baby boy who would have precedence and be, be the next king. Because, you know, her ambition was to live in a house in the country, have dogs and horses and, and children, have a family. Very uh, kind of a prosaic uh, routine ambition, but one that you know, she, she always felt would happen. Do you have any impression... I mean, you must, because you've got great sources, of what she thought of you, especially in the wake of the Princess Diana book. I was kind of public enemy number one for a time. And the the tendency of any member of the royal family or, or anybody in a position of authority is always blame the messenger. And so I was, you know, singled out for for attack. And but the irony was, it, it, I was just reporting on what was known inside the family and had been known for some time. And in, you know, amongst the household, amongst the courtiers, amongst the bodyguards, they they knew what was going on, and everybody had was living this kind of lie. And for a lot of for a lot of people uh, inside the the royal world, it was a huge relief when the Diana book came out because they no longer had to pretend. One wonders about the life that that she did end up leading and i guess i i have this question maybe i should have saved it for the end of our conversation but do you think she was happy i think the queen was happy at some times not so happy at others i mean 1992 as she said herself was a anna cerebralis the death of diana was not a happy time at all i i, I think the birth of her grandchildren gave her great happiness. I mean, uh, to the point where she's, she delayed several public engagements so that she could speak to her daughter, Anne, who'd just given birth to her first grandchild, Peter Phillips. There is a beyond a certain amount of irony to, and, you know, I just was watching the episode of The Crown last night about this, the fact that Margaret was denied happiness because she couldn't marry a divorced man. But then the Queen has four children, three of whom ended up getting divorces. How do you think she reflected on that? This is where the crown gets it right around its, its, its head. The Queen went out of her way to ensure that Margaret, during her relationship with Group Captain Peter Townsend, a married a, a divorcee, uh, had every latitude to decide whether she wanted to marry him or not. Uh, it was initially thought that she had all kinds of penalties, that she'd, be, she'd have to give up the civil list, her, her money, give up her title, give up her, her position in the line to the throne. In the end, the new Prime Minister, uh, Eden, advised both the, both the Queen and Margaret that all she had to do was give up her position in, in the in the succession, where, which was unlikely anyway. And she wouldn't be able to marry in church because as a divorce, marrying a uh, divorced divorcees marrying church was not allowed at that time so that was nothing to do with the, the royal family what i found interesting is that margaret never told peter townsend any of this he he was labored under the under the thinking that margaret had to give up everything and i mean everything in order to marry him and both of them came to the conclusion separately that they couldn't sustain the relationship the queen went out of her way to ensure her, her sister's happiness without it unduly affecting the status and standing of the crown. And th that's a more sophisticated 
explanation than it than appears in the crown but it is more telling of the queen's character which is fascinating because as you mentioned in the crown and i guess this is the dilemma we face these days people think it's a documentary and it's a, a drama based on true stories but the queen has always been represented as not necessarily a villain but having been so hidebound that she would deny her sister her only happiness yeah, I mean, and it's it's a bit of a cliche, to be honest with you. And I, I think it, her character was more sophisticated than that, that she was very cautious in making decisions. She wanted the protagonists to make their own decisions. I mean, let's just look at the, the, the classic example was Charles and Diana, that they separated and Diana was eager for a divorce so she could make you know get on with her life but she's she remained separated for what three or four years and the queen throughout that time hoped against hope that they would be reconciled so she was very much in favor of marriage she was not in favor of divorce and she did everything she could in order to 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 to, to prevent that this is, and I'm famous for them, a fairly pointy-headed question, but we always talk about the crown, and we have the royal we. So there is the crown, the sovereign, then there is the person, so in this case, Elizabeth. How did she bifurcate that through her life, or did she? Oh, she absolutely did. Um, it was very, I mean, it was very much the red boxes were her terrain, the family was Prince Philip's terrain, and uh, never the twain shall meet. But it was it was a difficult juggling act, especially in the early early years, where you know she was very young, quite uh, wholly inexperienced in in kind of executive actions, and she had this formidable prime minister, Winston Churchill, um, uh, advising her, and uh, and to a degree dominating her because you know she she was in awe of him. The duty side of her was very much. On, in terms of the crown with a capital C, and the mothering side had, was, to a degree, neglected uh, because of her onerous responsibilities. At that time, remember, there were very few female executives, and here she was, an executive in charge of Great Britain, Inc. And the ruling classes, the, both in the household, the, the royal household, but also politicians, thought nothing of sending the Queen off for six months with Prince Philip to Australia and New Zealand on a tour that meant that they couldn't see their children for, for all that time. And it makes me smile when, when uh, uh, certain members of the royal family complained about having to be away for 11 days. I mean, it's all very different today because of, you know, jet travel and, and the rest of it. But in those days, and when you think about it, it's six months, you know, it's a, it's a long period of time. We've mentioned the crown numerous times, and I'm very curious about how you feel about being depicted in the crown. What's it like to watch an actor pretend to be you? It was quite fun, actually. But I, I, I was, I think I was more of a cipher than a, a major character in the sense that the scenes were all stolen by Elizabeth Debicki, who plays Diana, and I was mesmerised by her performance because it was like entering the a room with Diana thirty years ago. I mean. I was really quite shocked when I first watched it because, it, you know, in your own mind, these events of your life kind of silt over and the silt has been settled and it, and it stirred up the silt again. Andrew Morton is with us. We're talking about his new biography of Queen Elizabeth uh, called Her Life. 
I wonder where you see the dynasty or the crown or whatever we want to refer to it as uh, right now. Because my own impression has been that I grew up with the queen, you grew up with the queen. I'm sure we were both born in her lifetime easily and in her reign. But I find as soon as a coin arrives in my pocket with Charles's face on it, I'm going to think this is just kind of a silly show. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that, that um, sentiment will have to be uttered by many of your uh, compatriots, and you might might want to think about a different kind of head and sta- a head of state or a different kind of arrangement. That's entirely up to Canadian people. I mean, there's always been a, a huge rump, especially in French speaking Canada, that don't want the House of Windsor to be their head of state. And it's the similar situation prevails in Australia and to a degree in New Zealand. Quick answer to your question. Many debates about the monarchy, notably the Commonwealth, have been set aside out of respect for the Queen. And now that she's gone, those debates will be happening. And I think you'll see King Charles racing around the world at the speed of light to to consolidate um, uh, the, the Commonwealth. I wish I could remember which comedian it was, but I was watching an act and he was advancing the theory that being born a royal is a form of slavery and and cruelty. And I guess, you know, Harry could could argue that. They all, I mean, they all could. I mean, suppose you had a royal family that didn't want to be royal. And it and it is it's no great privilege going to the milk marketing board and making some desultory speech on a wet Tuesday afternoon when you could be. Put, have your feet up and watching the racing. I mean, the, the irony is, just to kind of segue away from that, the Queen seemed to really enjoy the last years of her of her reign. She really, like, she, she had total control of it. She loved meeting the people, jumping out of helicopters, making sandwiches with Paddington Bear, and also, on a more serious level, making that famous we'll meet again speech during covid so for me the twilight of her reign is is probably the most fulfilling for her two last aspects i want to address with you one of them we haven't discussed her relationship with philip which in many ways was kind of a typical royal marriage or a typical upper class marriage yeah it was it was a very upper class marriage i mean they both had their separate interests, separate circles of friends, and went their separate ways. But they came together as companions, but also as Prince Philip as a helpmate. And he he had to reluctantly recognise that when George VI died. I mean, his ambition had been, and, and let's not forget this, both Princess Elizabeth and Prince Philip thought that they would uh, spend many more years in the Navy and uh, Princess Elizabeth as a Navy wife. And that's why the shock was so great that that the King's life uh, was brought short. And finally, I wonder what your general assessment of her place in history is. Well, obviously, she's she's always going to win out as the longest serving monarch ever in history. So that's going to be the primary thing. Secondly, her, her assessment will be very much over, will be defined by her family and also over a nation in rapid transition from the steam age to the jet age to the computer age. She, she's lived, as anybody in their 60s and 70s and 80s have, in a remarkable transformation of human society. And she's presided over it with a with a kind of wry smile on her face. But she had a certain deft 
understanding, I think, uh, in all of the eras you were just describing and all of the technologies that we've lived with, uh, she adapted again and again and again. Yes, indeed. I mean, when you see the rain at, in, uh, towards at the end in 2022 and at the beginning, it's a very different population and it's a very different rain. I mean, when the Queen ascended the throne, I think the statistics are something like four out of ten people believe she descended directly from God. Well, you wouldn't get many of them, them today. So British society has changed, world society has changed, the Commonwealth has changed, and she changed accordingly. And you, and this is what I chart in the book, going from this rather shy, diffident young girl into a woman who can command a room and and uh, command respect, not just at home, but also abroad. Thank you, sir. Appreciate this conversation. My pleasure. Nice talking to you.